Welcome to the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast, a series of audio recording files where Jonathan engages with questions and concepts through the lens of Rene Girard's mimetic theory and open and relational theology. Jonathan has written books that have gone number one on Amazon, though, currently, he has a couple of books ranked in the 300,000s. Seriously? You're telling me that they keep track that far? After about 1,000, what is even the point? This season of the podcast is called Frequently Asked Questions, and today's question is all about the church. And I quote, how did we get here? Make sure to like the show, leave a review, and sign up for Dr. J's newsletter at jonathanfosteronline.com. All right. Thank you, Emma. Man, a lot of sarcastic voiceover people this season. I'm going to have to check into that. Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is Jonathan. So I've been a pastor most of my life. I've planted some churches deep in evangelical world. Had some great times, truly. Also some really terrible times. Got asked to leave my denomination over matters LGBTQ+, which vocationally was the worst and best thing that's ever happened to me. So I've been through some absurd stuff in my life, an unusual amount of death in my very close circle of friends and family, some of it violent and awkward, and some of it, you know, what we might call more natural, but all of that has formed me. Let's see, I started a nonprofit in Southeast Haiti called lovehaiti.org. And that whole thing was and is a labor of love in the fullest sense of both of those words. My oldest son helped me a lot over the years. And now I'm pretty proud to say is along with a Haitian, the director of the organization. Let's see, what else should you know about me? Well, um, I've authored a few books. And as of this recording, my dissertation is turning into a book here in a few weeks called A Theology of Consent mimetic theory in an open and relational universe. I know, it's a pretty cool title. The content may not be very good, but the title is nice. So that's a quick run through through a lot of years and a lot of experiences, obviously on fast forward. It has been a full life, it occurs to me as I think about those things. It's not been boring. Though I will say that the life of a writer is probably pretty boring for most people. But anyhow, in the fullness of this whole life, I've had the privilege and the pain of knowing a lot of folks. And honestly, even even the painful stuff has been a privilege because it turns out that I learn best by experiencing, by doing, by having to go through all the difficulty of friendship, jagged pill of a word that that concept is for me. So I don't like a lot of what has happened, but strangely, I do feel gratitude. And I just keep including my experiences, but also trying to transcend my experiences. So I'm not trying to separate myself, imagine myself better than others or distant, separate from others, or even the events that have happened to me and for me and with me and within me. But I just keep bringing all these experiences inside of me, helping the interiority of who I am to grow larger, to attempt to hold all of it, and then bring it along with me as I transcend and keep moving forward. 
In other words, I'm trying not to be defined by my past, but at the same time, I know I'll never be free from the past. So all of it is just welcome. All of it belongs, as the good father Richard Rohr says, and all of it can be held. This experience thing, being connected to the past, but having the ability to move forward into the future, had become a really important part of my life, even before I came across open and relational thinking. And a guy by the name of Alfred North Whitehead, who way back in the 1900s imagined that reality was composed of occasions of experience. This was a decidedly different approach than the materialistic, mechanistic approach of science. And it's different than how theism, with its idea of God living outside of space and time, approached reality as well. Because if your God lives outside space and time, really, it's just a God outside of experience. The big theological word here is impassibility, or maybe immutability. It's baked into Christianity's concept of capital O, omnipotence. And it winds up being all about sovereignty, control, power, It's the idea that God doesn't feel things like we do. And believe it or not, God literally, at least this view espouses, cannot have compassion. The best God can do is that he approximates what humans are feeling. It's really troubling when you begin to look into it. And I don't mean to be disrespectful to lots and lots of individual folks who are a part of like a Calvinist or Reformed system that believes this way, though I am fine with being disrespectful to a system that requires people to think this way. It puts us in the ridiculous position of praying to a God that actually doesn't feel or respond or have compassion, doesn't understand, isn't moved or influenced. And side note, this is really wild to me. But you could be a part of a denomination that is technically very much like non-reformed, like the holiness denomination I used to be a part of, for example. But this kind of thinking, immutability, impassibility, a God who doesn't experience, this kind of thinking has so permeated all of Christianity that the people, including the leaders, are actually confused about what it is their particular group believes to the point that they can be lobbying for the very stuff that people in their denomination maybe a generation or two ago would have been lobbying against or pushing to enforce certain things that their current manual or bylaws or rules don't really enforce. Well, that starts to take this in a different direction that I really kind of want to go today. But the point here is that a great deal, like most of what I call American Christianity, has bought into capital O omnipotence, which at first, it sounds like a great idea because everyone wants to have the biggest and the strongest, you know, most uh, powerful God. But according to the theologians of yesteryear, the ones that most churches continue to build their theology upon, capital O omnipotence requires a metaphysical idea that God cannot experience any emotion that is in conflict with God's perfect wholeness or happiness or bliss that is entirely grounded in himself. Since it's all about him and it's nothing about you, it means that he really can't have compassion because to have compassion would mean that God would have to be affected by you, could be changed by you, influenced by you, because as the idea goes, 
God is already perfect and perfection is defined as something that never changes. I hope you can see how problematic this all can be. Yeah, I think capital O omnipotence has a bunch of troubling ideas. I write about it in Theology of Consent. And if you want to learn more about it, well, obviously, you're going to want to pick that book up, but also just read open a relational theology in general. Um, a great place to start might be uh, Tom Ord's book simply called Open and Relational Theology. And recently I was listening to a Ryan Mullins podcast. It's actually been a couple of months now. But um, he talks about this kind of stuff with respect to impassibility. I highly recommend it, the show. One of the episodes is called, Is God a Psychopath or something like that? Is, is the God of classical theism a psychopath? Yeah, some cool provocative title like that. So check it out. We're talking about experience and how I was realizing that my lived reality, what I was going through, drew heavily, obviously, upon experience, moment by moment, season by season, event by event. So when I came across Al Whitehead and process and open and relational thinking, and they were saying that reality itself is composed by experience, it made sense to me. Because I recognize all things are experiencing, from the smallest subatomic stuff to the largest cosmological stuff. Everything is in relationship, so everything experiences, including the divine. Yeah, including God, God experiences. Not only did I not think this was controversial, it was something I desired I would certainly hope that my God would experience. It's biblical, and it's the only way I can begin to imagine health, because I'm not interested in a robotic, unaffected deity. Different open and relational thinkers will consider this experiencing consciousness thing from different viewpoints. Uh, so let me just throw out a couple of larger terms. There's a few syllables involved here, but just hang with me for a moment. So some might refer to something called panpsychism to explain this. Others might be more inclined to lean toward the idea of pan-experientialism. So all things are thinking or all things are experiencing. And the philosophical and scientific world is blowing up with this conversation right now, which is great because we need to consider uh, the nuances of all of this. It's also not great because I'm not sure we've arrived at a place where there's a lot of shared definition, but it's worth us bringing, bringing it up at this point um, because whether you're talking about panpsychism or panexperientialism, the idea here is that what we have in our universe is a living system, that the entities within a living system are worth something, have some type of experience and should be valued. Though, of course, the experience of a flower is different than like a badger is different than a human. Nevertheless, it's all in relationship and it's all experiencing because, and this is the point for me, non-experiencing, non-responding like robotic entities are really useful in arguing for an omnipotent deity. Like if God is the only thing that this is all about and entities themselves don't think or at least experience, 
then God can just move stuff around as he sees fit, as he wants to. It's all about his desires and his wishes, and it has nothing to do with what his creation is experiencing. So it doesn't matter how you would feel about it. God does whatever he wants. Doing whatever one wants is obviously not something we normally include within characteristics of what we might call a healthy relationship, especially as we've evolved and grown more relationally intelligent. But for some reason, the omnipotent crowd still thinks that this is a desirable attribute of God. Now, I'm not suggesting God doesn't have desires or a will or intentionality or strength or ability to influence. I just don't think that that's the primary thing about God we should be focusing on or worried about. I think the primary thing about God is love. And the fundamental characteristic of love is consent. Consent means that God genuinely cares about what's going on with the experiencing entities like flowers and badgers and humans. And consent genuinely matches up with the idea that God loves the world. Now, classic pushback against all of this usually goes something like, well, here's a common, here's a common one you might hear. Uh, the preacher will say, well, would you rather have, who would you rather have if you were sick? Would you rather have a doctor who would come in and lay down and empathize with you and suffer with you, but not be able to help? Or would you rather have a doctor who, you know, was rational and could lay his or her emotions aside and actually heal you? Which is not a great analogy because A, it mischaracterizes emotion. Emotion needs to be accessed to be able to make rational decisions. It's actually so abstract, it's, it's even pointless because... There's no such thing as an emotionless human being. And B, it grossly misrepresents the God of love. So I'm not suggesting that consent makes God impotent. I still think God is the most powerful, influential, intentional agent in all the cosmos. I just don't think God can single-handedly heal or fix or perfect something. I think all those things are happening in relationship. I kind of think it's pointless to talk about love outside of relationship. And I kind of think love is the most powerful thing in the cosmos. Well, all of this has helped me personally navigate some really atrocious events in my life. Because how could this stuff happen if God is love and if God is capital O omnipotent? It just didn't make sense to me. And I suspect it doesn't make sense for a lot of other people either. That God loved the world signifies a whole bunch of stuff that increasingly needs to be redefined and reframed. You know, when someone is holding that sign up at, you know, we've all seen it at the end of the end zone on football games, at the extra point or the field goal, someone is hanging over the edge of the screen holding up that sign that says John three sixteen. For the majority, for the overwhelming majority of Americans, that sign is just a signifier it's a word and a few numbers, but it's signifying a whole bunch of stuff about love, God, sacrifice, blood, forgiveness, on and on. What open and relational theology is trying to do is to interrupt those signifiers. To say, no, wait a minute, there's maybe a healthier way of conceiving all of this. Just because John Calvin said God has predetermined everything, just because Anselm or Aquinas said God cannot literally have compassion or mercy. It doesn't mean that this is the best way to think. I mean, it might have been for their age. And if I had lived in their age, I probably would have thought that as well. But I don't. 
Thankfully, I and all of us have had the benefit of lots of thinkers over the years and science and evolved ways of living. We enjoy this benefit. They didn't. So it makes sense that we're coming to new conclusions and new ideas. In light of all this, when we see the ubiquitous John 3.16 sign, we could retrain ourselves to simply stop, like at the first part even, just stop at the part where it's for God so loved the world. It's not a love where he loves non-material souls. It's not that the evidence for his love of non-material souls is that he told his son he had to be murdered. That's not love. That's a petulant deity. No, God loved the world. God loves the flowers and the badgers and the humans, and I don't know why I keep saying flowers and badgers. But hey, I started with it. I'm going to stick with it. So God loves all of that, and love is interactive. Classical theism, again, what most of American Christianity is built upon, has told us that God can't really be interactive. I mean, not really. What I say as an open and relational theological thinking person is, wait a minute, hold on. This is all in your Bible. Well, I mean, it's not their Bible, but you understand what I mean. It's all a part of your teaching, the thing that you esteem, the idea that God responds, listens, hears, reacts, is interactive. It seems like there's a better way to conceive of all of this and still stay biblical for those who care about such things. And guess what that better way is? It's genuinely wrestling with the nuances of a relational and experiential love. getting on to our question of this episode, and it has to do essentially with church. When I posted something a month or two ago that asked people, hey, what do young people want to talk about? What are young people looking for right now? A bunch of you responded with questions that were church related. A whole bunch of questions like, why does a church have an angry God belief? Or why are we intolerant or homophobic or nationalist? Or why do I need to go to church? Or how do I do church without pushing religion on other people? Or how do I have a relationship with the church after seeing how much harm it has caused me personally or globally? Or my personal favorite, WTF is going on with the church. <laughs> I know there's a lot of stuff. So I'm going to hone in. Uh, by the way, I read someone the other day saying home in, H-O-M-E. I'm pretty sure it's hone, H-O-N-E. I suppose either one works, but I like hone. So I'm going to hone in on one question in particular today, and that is, how did we get here? How did the church wind up like this? I guess first we should say and always remember to say that there are some of us who are still a part of faith communities that seem to be healthy and doing good work. So it's easy to throw the whole thing under the bus. And I don't think that that's helpful. So I'm going to speak um, in generalities. And as the shoe fits, you know, just wear it. And if it doesn't fit, just don't throw the shoe at me. So how do we get here? First, I'm going to go Girardian. And here's a quick overview. 
So we all come from relationship. We live in relationship, are formed by relationship. Our desires are not our own. They emerge from a relational context. For example, the reason I like wearing jeans and flip-flops and casual shirts every day is because at some point growing up and all along the way of growing up, because this growing up never really stops, I associated the life of a dude wearing flip-flops as a good life. I mean, yes, I do like dressing comfortably, but all of it is contextual. A guy a couple of generations ago would not have been interested in living a professional life dressing like this pretty much every day. I dress this way because certain models have been presented to me. So the point is desire emerges out of a relationship with others. Furthermore, this desire can get me into trouble. So I'm aware of the guy who wears flip-flops because of two general things. A, I'm imagining he kind of has his life all put together. I mean, obviously he does. He's wearing flip-flops. You don't wear footwear like that if you don't have your life put together. (laughs) So at some level, apparently, I'm impressed with him. Secondly, I'm really aware of my own life, how much it's not put together. So I'm really just doing what all of us humans do. I'm trying to manage the anxiety of that non-put-togetherness, what the philosophers might call my lack. So I see his apparent non-lack and my own lack, and it causes me to overreach, to push, to try harder, to press. So in my overreach, that is in the attention I give to the flip-flops, my model can become aware of all the attention as well. And it just makes him want the flip-flops all the more because the truth is he's a lacking subject himself. It drives the value of the flip-flops up and it increases our overall anxiety. We both want that thing that we both think will assuage our own personal lack. And it can get strange. And we can draw our community in and around us because this is never just about one or two people. We're all connected to others. And then conflict and tension can grow. And I'm skipping some subpoints here to save time, but ultimately in this imitation and desire and more imitation, the conflict escalates to the edge of violence. And at this point, we either fight each other or we come up with a solution. And you might be like, wait, time out. No one fights over flip-flops. Well, you got to see the the footwear as metaphorical. It could be a degree or a car or the girl or the guy or the promotion. There's a lot of stuff wrapped up in flip-flops. Also, strangely, it could be actually the footwear as well. I mean, we're constantly looking for status symbols as a way to bolster our psyche. And then in the middle of a capitalistic society, which constantly presents to us arbitrary things like flip-flops, and says, if you just have this, you'll be whole and complete. Well, yeah, actually, it can just be about the footwear sometimes. So it gets crazy with all this stuff. You know, accusations can be made, friendships are lost, inordinate amount of tension can be placed on the wrong kinds of things. Churches are split, communities are divided, nations torn apart, world wars break out over the mimetic relational dysfunction. So yeah, it's there at the edge of the whole thing descending into chaos that Rene Girard says humanity invented a solution. Scapegoating. Scapegoating is deciding that our model really isn't the problem. Really, it's another guy. Now, it doesn't matter if this other guy is guilty of anything or not. The point is, if we agree together that the other guy is the problem, then we get to transfer our psycho-spiritual antagonism onto him. So then me and my model agree in unity to blame the other person for our problems. Side note, 
there's a really good chance that the scapegoating guy, he's not wearing flip-flops because the scapegoating mechanism works best when the scapegoat is different. Here's a really good one. I don't know if I'll explain it that well, but it's a good example because the question has occurred to me over the last several years, how is it possible that someone like Donald Trump has become synonymous with uh, something like evangelicalism? I mean, I'm not going to suggest that there aren't a multiplicity of factors that are in play with all of this. Uh, by the way, if you haven't read Kristen DeMay's, is it Jesus and John Wayne? I think that's the title of it. It goes into some detail about all of this and it's pretty interesting. But I do think the scapegoating mechanism helps us see what might be going on at some level here. Because on paper, Trump and a conservative religious system, they don't exactly go together. And I don't mean to be overly critical of him, but it's apparent that he's rich. I mean, he's divorced. He's braggadocious. He's something of a womanizer. It's not like he's this kind of typical, you know, like humble unassuming Bible-carrying guy that evangelicalism would like to have seen at least a few years ago, though I say Bible-carrying guy. He did famously carry that Bible in the photo op across from the White House in front of the Episcopal Church. That was a, geez, that was crazy. That was all happening during the aftermath of the George Floyd murder and Black Lives Matter organizing demonstrations that unfortunately at times turned into riots and you know, some property was being ruined and destroyed. And I don't think that's necessarily great, but think about how weird it is and ironic it is that the president calls upon the police to use tear gas to clear a path to the front of the church for a photo op with a Bible. Like he physically forces people out of the way to demonstrate that physically forcing people is wrong. He starts a little riot to demonstrate that starting riots is wrong. And that he, backed by the Bible, of all things, will uphold this duplicitous standard. That whole time was so weird. It still is weird. We're not that far removed. Anyhow, what we have here are, are two former, well, they're not really opponents, but just people from different sectors of society, I guess I'll say it that way, in Trump and in the religious right, coming together in unity to project their insecurities onto another group of people. And in this case, it was by and large the BLM folks. But generally speaking, you know, it's anyone who, well, just as long as they're not conservative, they're not white, um, they don't publicly like back the police. It's, it's those kinds of people. Because what Trump and evangelicals value is power, hierarchy, status quo. Now, to be fair, there are probably some evangelicals out there who value other things as well. But by and large, it appears to be a system that overvalues those uh, aforementioned things. And I suppose, to be fair to Trump, there's probably some good inside of him too. People coming together over against someone else, the outsider. It's a very powerful way to unify. It's a time-honored way. And Girard points out that little verse in one of the Gospels. It can be overlooked, but it's noted that Pilate and Herod, before Jesus, they weren't friends. 
but during the whole trial of Jesus, they became friends. And of course, the religious elite, I mean, they had no love for the Romans. But in order to point their finger at the outsider, they were more than happy to partner up with Rome. So you got the religious elite, Pilate and Herod, none of them really ostensibly got along. But they were more than happy to get together to unify in order to pick out the scapegoat. So to recap, desire leads to imitation, leads to conflict, leads to scapegoating. Because all that is easier than just admitting, than just admitting that we don't have it all together. <laughs> it's crazy. I want to laugh. I also want to cry because it's true. If we could just admit that it's okay to be a human and have insecurities and that we'd be okay, we actually might be okay. We could create a path forward, but no, we don't. We're often our own worst enemy. And then along comes religion and religion just layers this scapegoating mechanism right into the way that it operates. Because, and here's something very important to note, scapegoating, it kind of works. It alleviates the tension. It ushers in a sense of peace. Catharsis is probably the appropriate word here. Religion has figured out that the best way to get an antagonized community to experience relief is to offer them a scapegoat, to give them someone for them to project all their problems onto. And when the scapegoat has been clearly identified and punished, a type of peace can sweep through a community. Think of the way that we, or all of us, we want to pin our problems onto the quote-unquote bad person. It really doesn't matter who that person is as long as it's not us or someone a part of our group. It could be non-mask wearing or mask wearing. It could be black or white. It could be Russian or Ukrainian. It doesn't really matter. It appears we tune into one news station because they do such a good job of othering the scapegoat, of pointing out where the problem really lies. It appears that we have an algorithmic mediated tribe on our social media sites because they're all so good at pinning the problem on the same people we want to pin the problem onto. And regarding religion, like historically, we've done the same thing at church. I'm not saying there haven't been a lot of good things that have happened at church, but we can't miss this part that we, we have tended over the years to go to places where folks are like-minded. They have the same socioeconomic background as we have, uh, the same standing in the you know, systems that we have. To hear the preacher talk about how we should be holy or set apart, and then that holiness is defined by all the things that God wants, and anyone who's remotely close to what God doesn't want is bad. And of course, everyone in the congregation is supposed to stay away from the bad. And some of it's okay, because it's not wrong to decide as a group what might be healthy or not. The problem is, the rules are arbitrary. And even more of the problem, the rules are usually defined as in, like, they are good in light of people who are bad. So if all the bad people went away, they wouldn't even know what to do. They wouldn't have anywhere for their psycho-spiritual agitation to go, no one to project upon, no one to say, hey, don't be like those people. Yeah, this is all very real stuff. When you take away the scapegoat in church, many people will not know what to do. I'm living proof of this. Man, I tried to tell a scapegoat-loving denomination that they don't need to scapegoat. Like, they don't need to other LGBTQ plus human beings. That they, the denomination now, I tried to say, you're actually okay. The insecurity you feel as a denomination, it's, it's all right. It's a part of what it means to be human. 
that God actually loves you with your anxiety about this stuff. At the same time, God loves the people who identify outside the binary norm. God loves all of us just the way we are. (laughs) Yeah, this is some very real stuff playing out here. So not only did they get rid of me, I actually have no doubt that they even had an uptick in feelings of warmth and fuzziness within their tribe. Yeah, they would have called it conviction or some kind of revival, then framed it as confirmation that they were on the right side and that God was with them. And they would have used it to pull other people together in unity in order to scapegoat me for pointing out their scapegoating ways. I'm sure that's happened. But my point is the reason it has happened is because it works. Scapegoating can usher in a type of peace. Even more than that, scapegoating, a lot of organizations actually need it. When you think about Hitler and the Jews, Hitler wanted to get rid of the Jews, but he really needed the Jewish people in order to project all of his animosity, in order to get people to rally around the problem, right? What would they have done if they didn't have an enemy I think Trump and the evangelicals are a bit like that. I'm not comparing Trump and the evangelicals to Hitler and Germany, though some do want to do that. I'm just suggesting that they, the reason that these two different types of people, two different types of groups can come together is because they're really good at finding common enemies and it helps them unify. And then they'll feel that much stronger. And then when they get rid of the scapegoat, they'll feel that much more peace sweeping through the community, which only serves to legitimize what they've done. So yeah, man, scapegoating works. Well, until it doesn't work, because the peace never lasts. This is the part about Girard that sometimes gets overlooked. Girard says, when the stuff builds back up again, religion, they just, they do it all over. They repeat what they did in the past. They pick a new scapegoat, maybe add some new liturgies, some new prayers, a few new songs, and they do it all over again. In other words, religion for Girard is a way to maintain peace and order through scapegoating. Sometimes you'll hear atheists or militant anti-church people say something like, you know, religion, it just inspires violence. And it's partly true, but actually in light of all this, I don't think that goes far enough. I think in light of all of this, we're made aware that violence is what inspires our religion. I think in revealing the scapegoating mechanism reveals that God has always been love. There was no reason to build this whole thing upon an all-powerful deity who, of course, was masculine and full of testosterone, who has to come in and dominate everything because we've screwed it all up. There's really no reason that God would need a scapegoat. But even when Jesus reveals all that, we took it as yet another sign that, no, actually God did need a blood payment. God did need a scapegoat, someone to pay for our sins. And while, to be fair, yes, American Christianity tries to say, yes, Jesus was a scapegoat, but he was the last one, the final sacrifice, I have at least two obvious questions. 
A, why would love ever need death in the first place? And B, was Jesus really the last scapegoat? Because we've basically been doing nothing but scapegoating ever since. Well, at least certainly since the time of Constantine. The church got to where we are, which according to all the young people who texted me, is a group of people very much in conflict, very much living by judgmentalism and Bible thumping and rule keeping because it's built its theology ultimately upon conflict. What it has, and I'm speaking of generalities again, so please just assimilate this thinking into your context as best fits. What it has is a love of capital O omnipotence. That is an obsession with a non-experiencing God, a God who really can't interact with his creation. They've got that paired up with a really strong awareness of its own lack, of its own shortcomings and faults, who then built a religion upon conflict and violence. If we could just tell people, wait a minute, we've been doing most of this, if not all of this wrong. There's something healthier. And that health is actual, genuine, inclusive, challenging, and consensual love. Love is interactive. It's relational. God is in relationship with us. A good parent will tell you that as their kid goes, so they go. Nothing happens in the life of the kid that doesn't affect the life of the parent. So it might be with the divine. Nothing happens with the kids that doesn't affect the life of the divine. We got here because we only know how to process our anxiety with violence. We can get out of here by repenting, which means changing our mind, and realizing that it's possible to process our anxiety with love. So the questions about how to move forward, how to not be someone who weaponizes the Bible, how to not be judgmental, how to live in community without the toxicity for us and for our children. Yeah, it's love. Love is harder. It'll ask more of us. It'll invite us to lean into and wrestle with the concept of consent and really seeing our brother and sister, but it's the only way. That amazing old Einstein adage works so well here. What, how's it go? Something like the thinking that got us into this problem will not be the thinking that gets us out. Yeah, it's so true. It's going to take something new. And I think the relational, experiential, consensual, non-scapegoating love is the something new. It's ancient, but it's new and contemporary. Maybe you, the young people, the next generation, will be the ones who really, really infuse it within all of your religious systems. close with a little paragraph, something I wrote in Theology of Consent. Breathe. Be at one with everything. Insecurities too. They're a part of us. They are us. We cannot defeat them. Our suppression only serves to invigorate their vitality and ensure their tenacity. Our denial only validates the honor we reserve for religions of scapegoating and violence, as if God is interested in any of our religious projects. The way forward is to embrace the unease that so easily puts us at disease, to allow solicitudes to rattle and hum within, 
divine human fluctuations that they are, leading us to newer and deeper instantiations of love. glad to say I was able to take this conversation a bit further with my good friend, the Reverend Doctor, Doctor, the Reverend Doctor Latia Frazier. So Latia and I hung out together on Vimeo recently. The entire video is on my Patreon page. All you got to do is go to patreon.com forward slash Jonathan underscore Foster. You can see the whole thing. But uh, I'm going to put a couple of minutes in here, after which Emma will do a little outro, remind you of a couple of things, and that'll be it. Thank you so much for being with me. I hope this was helpful as we talked about how in the world we got here as a church. There's probably a million different reasons, but those are my ideas as I've filtered the response to this question through memetic theory and open and relational theology. Peace, everyone. How do you think we got where we're at here? Man, I think that that's a a big question. Um, But I would say that there are many reasons for why and how we got here. I think that the structure, at least in America, of Christianity kind of sets itself up within the consumeristic sort of mindset around capitalism and so you have uh, racial uprisings happening, especially in the last few years, you have COVID and other pandemics. And yeah, I just think there's a lot going on at one time and the church um, is another institution and organization that wasn't uh, immune from, from those things. miss out on that conversation on Dr. J's Patreon page. Thank you for tuning into the show today. You can stay connected with Jonathan by signing up for his newsletter at jonathanfosteronline.com or by picking up a copy of Theology of Consent. That is, if it's after October of 2022, but also by texting him at 913-313-9. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Why? We're not going to give out, probably not going to give out my cell I number. think it would be nice for people to know how to get a hold of you. Yeah, but you don't just typically hand out your phone number in situations. Did you know that in the old like days, it? there was a thing that existed called the Yellow Pages? Right. Well, as a matter Everyone's of fact... Everyone's phone number and address yeah, was in there. I know. I lived during a time when they actually had the Yellow Pages. And now that you mention it, it is kind of crazy. You could just find anyone's phone number or address, but... You know, in the future, let's just we'll encourage them to like tweet me, Facebook, send me a regular like a postcard.